Hey there, welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast, episode 41, where Dina and I sit down and talk with The Rock. That's Garrett Rock from Athletes Blood Testing. Garrett is a phenomenal, phenomenal man. Great knowledge. He has done so much work in biomarker testing for athletes. So we thought we'd sit down with him, chat a little bit, pick his brain, really talking about uh, what he has been doing for the past 15 years in the blood testing for athlete biomarker space. Why blood testing isn't just for professional athletes. So uh, all of us recreational athletes, listen up. This is a a great episode to really dig into why we need to have biomarkers tested, which ones they are. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, plant-based athletes, what biomarkers are important for them, the aspects of aging and how we need to look at biomarker testing, as well as young athletes and the dangers of dietary supplements. So this episode is going to be phenomenal. Dr. Garrett Rock is on with us. Hope you enjoy it. Well, hello and welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dina Griffin here as always with Bob Sibahar. How are you doing, Bob? Good morning, Dina. I'm doing good. And I have kind of a smirk on my face because, uh, you know, before we hopped on here, you told me that you have not been fully caffeinated yet. And an- and I just, I just kind of, just kind of laughed a little bit. I just can't wait for us to to have this episode and, and see what Dina's like without full caffeination. It, yeah, we're like borderline on the verge of having the shakes from withdrawal from one day without caffeine. I love it. <laughs> I love it. But I am actually, uh, you know, extra excited even without the caffeine, Bob, because we have Garrett Rock on with us today to talk about blood testing. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure, and I'm really excited for this conversation with two people that I just have always enjoyed speaking to and and respect so much. Well, thank you. I think, you know, we are extra delighted, as I mentioned, um, because we wanted to talk about a very important and special topic to uh, both Bob and I, and that is the importance of blood biomarker blood biomarker testing for our athletes and what that can tell us. But first of all, we wanted to tell our listeners more about you and your story. Um, since you are the CEO and founder of athlete blood test, one of my favorite blood testing companies. So I wondered if you could start by just telling us more about how you brought this company to life and what were the you know reasons um, that you saw a need for this kind of testing for athletes? Yeah, this is a kind of an origin story that I, I think I'm proud of because I, I it's so um, it was built upon curiosity. Um, and so the origin is that in 2007, I worked in a clinic that Uh, saw a lot of professional athletes, a lot of Olympic athletes. Um, We had a full gamut of services from, you know, medical care to musculoskeletal care. And in 2007, I had a coach who was a a prominent coach, Matt Steinmetz in the endurance sports industry that um, him and a a few of his athletes brought, brought blood tests into us. 
And these were you know, a panel that had done, had been performed through their primary care physician. And all of the athletes um, were being told, you know, uh, well, were being you know, told of concerns that, you know, we're living on the paper. And, you know, these were things that, you know, we can giggle about now, um, like ALT being high, AST being high, liver enzymes, um, you know, kidney markers, et cetera. And um, the athletes were essentially being told that they were, you know, putting their body through too much stress and that things were shutting down. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense because at the time, um, all there were three of them initially and all three of them uh, there were two females that were you know vying for spots number one and two in the world in the Ironman distance and uh, a male that was uh, vying for spot number one and so these these individuals were performing at the absolute highest level in the world the best athletes in the world in one of the most challenging you know events in the world and in most stressful events in the world and yet you know uh, you know, it looked on paper and by all medical training um, that there was a problem here and that they were shutting down. So, um, so it eventually just led us to uh, create some framework around performing a study. Um, so we recruited 10 Ironman athletes, all of them, you know, top athletes and uh, uh, professional athletes. And we recruited some labs to donate tests, um, many different forms of tests. So everything from you know, blood biomarkers and a huge, huge um, panel of blood biomarkers to urine metabolites to uh, white blood cell um, tests in uh, pretty much anything we could get our hands on. At the time, genetics were um, sort of just too expensive and not readily available. But um, so for a year, we tested these 10 athletes on a regular basis um, and then just, you know, look to see what we found. Well, um, after, you know, one year and 10 athletes, you're not going to be led to a whole lot of significant co conclusions, but um, it raised a lot of questions and also started to lead us into what sort of directions we should steer future research. Um, and that's eventually, or that's essentially how, you know, this whole concept got started. Um, from there, it really took off the you know, professional endurance community, uh, dove all in on this. Um, we had hundreds and hundreds of athletes that, you know, tested over the next few years and that just continued to grow and grow and grow. Um, and from there, it became driven by curiosity. We started to get answers, you know, to some of our you know, initial questions of what's okay, what's not okay. Um, but then we started to see findings that really just made us super curious about, you know, what's going on? What is this telling us or not telling us? And um, so fast forward to 2017, um, it was pretty clear that this needed to be a service that was available to the public because by that time we actually had a, a pretty big database of non-elite athletes, you know, of your, your, uh, your recreational athletes. And um, we were finding more problems in that crowd than we were in, you know, the professional athletes mm -hmm. or, um, or problems, issues, you know, uh, inefficiencies physiologically, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. But um, so we made it available through, you know, an entity that is uh, creatively named 
athlete blood test. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> um, and that's that been was going a smart since... movement right there. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my idea. <laughs> um, I had some yeah, strange names out there that uh, yeah. merged words and um, some smarter people than me said, just call it athlete blood test. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, here we are today, um, you know, we test thousands of consumers. Um, we still work, we work in pretty much every major sporting market with teams, individuals, um, you know, uh, nationally, national teams, professional teams in most major sports. So uh, we've got a p- pretty big footprint in a, uh, a really great database. Yeah. Garrett, was it just you early on? When so it's me and, and collaborating really with, uh, it started with one coach and then uh, okay. we had a few of the prominent um, triathlon and running coaches that were engaged. But ultimately, I was doing the data acquisition, organizing the tests and um, doing all the work for free. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I was curious because 2007, when you mentioned uh, as the earliest year, and that was right when I became a dietitian. I'm trying to remember when the, the little bit of sport nutrition that was out there looking at blood work and so forth. I mean, I think it was iron was the only thing that was talked about, at least in my memory. So how has the research in the athletic population um, emerged since that time? Or can you talk to that a little bit? Because I imagine it was pretty weak <laughs> way back <laughs> when. And then how it's back evolved in the days, a bit. You know? Yeah, back in the days. <laughs> it was really weak. And, you know, I mentioned those earlier biomarkers, you know, those are liver, well, considered yeah. liver enzymes, but mm-hmm. also released by skeletal muscle. And, mm-hmm. you know, to find, you know, any information on athletes at the time was, it just hardly existed. There were a few early adopters that, you know, had thrown out, you know, not research, but case studies um you know there was one small Ironman study I think and um it was just I mean the athlete population was pooled in with the regular population when it came to blood tests and you know as we'll probably get into that is inappropriate um Mm -hmm. for many biomarkers so um now there's been an explosion um you know there was I mean I, I think of our early research I know we influenced the launch of another company that's not doing testing anymore, uh, a couple other companies that's, that are not doing testing anymore. Um, and yeah, I just think of the influence that we have had on, as individuals. And then there's other entities now that are you know, bigger than us that you know, are making a huge splash as, as well. So uh, we've, I've had the privilege of, of serving on some, you know, uh, a couple of think tanks, um, you know, with some pretty influential partners that um, you get, I mean, you show up for, for example, one is Red Bull, um, you know, they would, we'd go out there once or twice a year and they bring usually 17 to 20 of us out there. And there's a lot of leaders in the sports science industry and they're putting us at a table for two days and bringing up, or, you know, we're discussing topics and, this topic um, is it's always at the forefront of mm. people's minds now. And so there's so much innovation and new science coming out on a, you know, a daily basis, practically in this field. And it's really, 
it's exciting because when I first got into this, you see just how underserved it was and then trying to push this, you know, I was early enough where, you know, I was trying to push this to people saying, look, the data that we have is, is pretty compelling. It's pretty interesting. And we should be thinking about things differently. We should be thinking about athletes as individuals, not a group of people that all can train and eat the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, now that's becoming the norm, you know, across the sporting markets. So, um, so it's very exciting. I think there's a really bright future. For sure. And you're kind of at the leading edge, Garrett. I know, and I've always thought this and just a, a quick back in the day story, because I did have to just drop that Dina back in the days. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you mentioned Dina, when you first became an RD in 07, I was at at 06, 07, no, no, I'm sorry, 05, 06, I was actually at the University of Florida, and and I vividly remember this. So I was the director of sport nutrition, and we would get some labs on the athletes there, which was great, but literally, to your point, Dina, we would only get, like, we get the full CBC, and that's it, and then we get iron, but we would only get ferritin, that's it, right? And And I'm talking to the medical facility, or the peeps, and I'm like is there any chance we can get like full? So back then we didn't know a lot, right? But we knew more than what was being done. And that was, I think the key, right? Where, but, but there was a lot of resistance back then. And they said, no. So we would, you know, they wanted basically us to recommend supplements based on a ferritin level. And and I was never comfortable with that. So what ended up happening? We didn't do it. Right. So, you know, fast forward. And now I do feel Garrett, you've been a leader in this field, like literally one of the pioneers in, in my humble opinion. And I'm not just saying that because you've, you're, you're on our podcast, right. But you have been a leader and, but here's my frustration. Even now it's 2022 when we're recording this, even now, I still get so frustrated, Garrett, when I work with athletes and I ask them just about simple, have you had a blood work test done before? And they'll either pause and say, "Mm, not quite sure what you're talking about. Or they'll say, yeah, I had a physical last year with my doctor. And I, and, you know, we get into that as you know, and usually that is just the basic of the basic, right? So this is kind of one of my frustrations, Dina's frustrations. How how do we teach our listeners, these athletes? It could be team sport, endurance, like you name it. How do we teach them why blood work testing is so important? Like what messages do you use that that we can help our listeners understand why this is so important? Yeah, I, I share that frustration. Uh, you know, it, it feels like we're getting more grasp now, but, you know, I you go to an Ironman race or something, you look at the, the wheels, the bikes, the water bottles that are, you know, cost yeah. as much as a blood test. And, yeah. you know, all that is for not if yeah. you don't have your physiology figured out. So um, we've talked a lot about, you know, this message and how we get it out because, you know, this industry is being pushed by, you know, scientists and, um, and typically, the general population scientists don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. It's like me trying to talk to my wife sometimes. She's an attorney. And uh, right. <laughs> um, they have their own lingo, and we've got our own lingo. But um, one way that I like to think of uh, this whole concept is, is as a map. And, and, and so, you know, in the old days, when we wanted to get from point A to point B, we used a paper map, an atlas. And it's a stagnant, you know, unchanging map that everybody sees the exact same thing. And you highlight your route and 
you start driving. Well, you run into these obstacles, you know, road construction, accident, et cetera. And you're just left dealing with the obstacles, with the problems. And nowadays, you know, we've got these smartphones and, uh, you know, we plug in where we're going and they're going to reroute us to avoid yeah. all of these obstacles. And so when I think of you know, what blood testing, what role it serves in the athlete population, it's really, it's, it's the smartphone map. It's, it's the thing that, you know, tells us, you know, what our body's going to need, how it responds to, you know, certain types of training and how and what obstacles could exist and how to avoid them. So, um, you know, I don't know if that's the right analogy, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, it's, I guess, a, a more simple analogy that makes a whole lot of sense to me because that really is what blood testing is doing. We are, we are trying to predictively profile a person. So we say, you know, Garrett Rock gets a, you know, let's say a genetic test and a blood test and the disparities between what we see and what, you know, the genetics, you know, show something should look like, you know, compared to what the blood is showing us tells us the environmental influences that are affecting my levels. So maybe that's climate, um, maybe that's stress, maybe that's my diet or, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it allows me then to accommodate for and, you know, prevent hitting that wall. Or for me, iron is just something that I just deplete it really quickly. And um, if I'm not eating foods that are rich in iron, then I will start to see decline. And so you know, when I know that I can avoid that back when I first started endurance racing, boy, I hit some crashes and, and, you know, you'd have these periods of time where you're just wondering what in the world is going wrong. Right. So that's, uh, that's one way that I, I think of it. Um, you know, an another consideration is just is endurance sports. I mean, they're wildly popular. We continue to go longer and longer distances, push ourselves harder and harder. And that's a whole fun conversation in itself, why we're you know, drifting that way. But um, you know, people, they escalate to pretty long distances fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yesterday morning, I was running up Steamboat Mountain with a guy and, and you know, he just finished a uh, 100K race the other day. And I said, when did you get into endurance sports? And he said, three years ago. And yeah, yeah <laughs> going from zero you know, K to hundred K yeah. in three years is yeah. quite impressive. And, and, you know, the professional athletes, I mentioned that we see more problems in, in, you know, non-professional or non-elite athletes, you know, some of that is experience. Mm. You know, I've, I'm a pretty powerful or pretty strong believer in, you know, the power of nature and its ability to, you know, tell us what we need to know and what we need to do. If you're, if you're a willing to listen and b, you know, create enough experience to feel those things. And so those professional athletes, you know, a lot of times you see, you know, they started at, you know, seven years old and in doing their first, let's call it triathlon or, and, uh, you know, they've been racing professionally. I mean, they sort of drift into patterns that, Mm -hmm. you know, that are the right thing for them. And, uh, you know, the athletes that are, you know, 
diving into something new, you don't have enough experience to, to understand, you know, what your body's telling you. Yeah. So, and, and they don't know their bodies that well. And to your point, I think most professionals do have a little bit more subjective knowledge of their bodies. Like they can kind of grade it here and there. And, um, and I've, I've worked with a lot of pros who've been able to do that. I mean, not spot on say, Hey, my iron level is blank, blank, but they know when things are happening and going wrong. And I think that's a little pushback I get from the recreational athletes I work with is, Oh no, blood work is just for the elites. It's just for the pros. Cause it's their job. And can you speak to why maybe that's not the right thought process? Why blood work testing is so important for us normal people also? Yeah. I mean, I think this is where statistics are warranted. Um, I mean, you look at, let's take adolescent female endurance athletes. I mean, uh-huh. you know, the studies are, um, they tend to trend around that 50 percentile mark, you know, from mid forties to just over 50% of adolescent um, female athletes being iron deficient, you know, and, and for us, you know, we also have biomarkers, you know, in addition to iron, um, most of the studies, you know, Dina, to your point, we still have a long ways to go. The majority of studies still key in on, you know, you know, something like iron has been studied like crazy now, but, you know, incidence wise, we see folate, you know, as, almost as often as iron. And it's a, you know, that's a pretty significant one um, in regards to creating or causing performance declines and just wellness declines. Um, But uh, um, I mean, going back to your question, statistically in our data, recreational athletes are more likely to have a both deficiency and over supplement uh, than professionals. So, I mean, we see high iron, we see high B12 all the time I mean, skyrocketed B12. And, and, you know, this is from just, I guess, un, uh, unsupported through a test, you know, behaviors, you know, mm-hmm. take this, right. take this supplement and you're going to go faster. And <laughs> it doesn't yeah. always, it's not always the right tactic for, well, anybody. Right. I love earlier when you were mentioning Garrett, the map analogy, I really like that because, you know, like there is the route or each of our, like, well, we're humans, we're the same species, you know, like there's that parallel. We have the, the map route to tell us this and that, that we know, but then there's the individual response. Like, how am I going to handle that terrain in this vehicle? And am I going to freak out at the roadblock coming up, bear with me for this, for this analogy back to human physiology, but learning then my blood work tells me more about my individual response. Like you were saying with regard to environmental stressors or the training programming or my dietary influence. And so knowing the blood work trends and that monitoring that can occur helps me navigate my course better because I understand my body and all of the impacts that are happening internally, externally. And then as we age, so I I don't know if that made sense or um, if that's kind of what you were saying, or maybe I'm just taking it (laughs) another step, having just returned from a road trip, thinking about the paper map and the uh, smartphone app. (laughs) Did you guys use the paper map, Dina? 
I don't think do they still make those? I did double check paper map. Do they? I know they yes. make topo maps, but I don't know about yeah. the whole interstate roadway maps anymore. I'd have to check on that. <laughs> I do. But anyway, I wondered, okay, so anyway, I wondered uh something before we talk more maybe population specifics with regard to athlete blood testing. Garrett is something that I highly appreciate about your services is that you take it's not just looking at these individual markers like, oh, your ferritin, your your iron storage is out of range. Whoops, we need to eat more iron or supplement that you and your staff really look more. You look at individual markers, but there's also this holistic approach or comprehensive um, mapping approach. So it's it's looking at the individual data being provided, like who are you as an athlete and understanding some of the nuances there, but then looking at the blood work with human eyes to understand, you know, the panels, how these biomarkers work together, uh, not just individually. So I, can you expand on that and, and help some of the listeners understand this very important feature of your services? Yeah, I can tell you where that originates from, and it's through failure. So um, when uh, once we started to think about, you know, turning this into something available to the public, um, we had to think hard about how you scale. And so the smartest way to scale from a business perspective would be to just algorithm or create algorithms. And so we ran a um basically well we didn't study participants what we did was took old results and created algorithms based on the facts that we had and then we plugged the old results into that what we got was an almost 30 percent failure rate um meaning you know 30 percent of people are going to be given a recommendation that either conflicts with another finding in the test or is not the right recommendation because of, you know, factors that they shared with us on their subjective questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something like eat more meat when you're a, a vegan or, um, <laughs> or uh, try intermittent fasting when <laughs> you're training 30 hours a week, you know, that's yeah, what yeah. we would call an eating disorder. And uh, yeah. so, so, so ultimately, you know, we decided at that point, this wasn't going to be something that we're going to try and make big. We're going to keep this boutique. We're going to keep the human involvement. And, um, and because we're established that way, we also, I, we're capturing that subjective information. That's a critical, critical component of our research. So, you know, lab number matching is, I mean, that'll work for you know, actually the majority of people we found like just match A to B um, and spit out a finding. But but 30% is a really high number. And especially, you know, this stuff, it's not it's not really expensive, especially not when you compare to a lot of the equipment that we're buying, but it's not cheap either. And mm-hmm. um, and people expect the value out of it. And also, you know, we want to be rewarded with with uh, the testimonials, we want to mm-hmm. hear from every single person that this helped me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we hear a lot, this was a game changer, but then there are people that, you know, they're just going to get 
you know, little tidbits out of it because things are looking maybe okay. So, um, so that's where it came from. And it continues to just be an absolutely critical component of our work. Our preference, huge preference is always to work through people like you guys, mm -hmm. because you guys are truly looking at the holistic uh, picture here. You know, what, you know, what did they run or what was their workout yesterday um, and how they felt or how did they feel? So that is our preference. It's just not always available because, you know, I think it's still probably a minority of athletes that are using experts. Um, most are mm -hmm. printing plans off the internet, I think. And yep. um, so we've had to make ourselves available uh, to those people and also not and, and give them the best service that we can. Um, and that just, in our research requires still sort of a, you know, quote unquote clinical approach. Yeah. Dina and I have tried to clone ourselves. It's not working out too well. It's so, not. but, but no, we, well, we might need your help on that one for sure. <laughs> it's like that bad Santa movie or was it Santa something? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. But this is here. You, you touched on something cost, right? And, and maybe I'm spinning this, but this is a big pain point for a lot of the athletes and, and, and it's simply because they don't understand also, but they say, oh, I'll just go to my general practitioner, my physician, whomever, right? And I'll, and I'll get these done. And I say, well, here's usually what's going to happen when you go visit him or her, right? And, and no fault for them, right? But they don't have a lot of physicians, which I'm, I'm sure you would agree because you are, you are a healthcare professional. Um, I think you would agree that a lot of physicians are not trained in the athletic eye to look at labs and the association of different biomarkers and how they react to each other or with each other. And that's what I feel, you know, I don't have any hair, but I would pull out my hair, but I feel like I constantly pull out my hair in trying to teach athletes that it's, you're not going to get the same data and information from your general practitioner as you would if you do go to an expert such as yourself with athlete blood test. And, you know, a lot of times what ends up happening, unfortunately, is, you know, I get the the basic lab work on my desk on my computer. I'm like, okay, well, it's missing about more than half the markers that I want to see. But anyway, it comes back to cost is what I'm talking about. Right. So I don't know. I don't know how I position it. It's it's tricky with athletes because I get it. You know, you pay a copay depending on your insurance or whatever versus a couple hundred bucks for for a good good biomarker analysis. But you also mentioned something. I'm going to let you talk here in a second, Garrett, because I'm I'm going off on a rant. Because remember, you mentioned you know you go to any race and you're looking at these expensive, just expensive equipment. These days, look at the registration fees, right? I My mind is blown because you can get a great blood work biomarker. You could probably get a whole bunch of these things underneath the sun in terms of testing for less than some of these registration fees. So listeners, let's, let's just package this right now and look at the big picture. But Garrett, how do you address this cost, you know, going to their general practice physician versus more of a specialty such as yourself? I mean, how do you, how do you bridge that gap? How do you have that conversation? Yeah. Well, I'm, as you guys know, I, I work in healthcare, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, you know, help run a, a rather large physician organization. Mm -hmm. And, um, so there's, there's two things that I, I want to say, and, and I don't want to, create a comparison. I mean, it's, it, I have to, it's impossible not to, but, but I don't want to pin, I guess, us against, you know, primary care. 
providers, mm-hmm. for example. I mean, primary care providers are heroes to me. They, you know, the the wealth of knowledge. I mean, they are expected to be, you know, slightly experts on everything and right. identify and triage and and when you look at just education, what that means is you're not doing a deep dive into nutrition. In fact, mm-hmm. um, I think, I mean, this is an old stat, but um, was it 10 years ago, the average primary care physician in practice had was like under 10 hours of nutrition education. And you certainly are not then, you know, drilling that down to special populations. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is population-based in that arena. Um, so number one, it is not in apples to apples comparison as far as you know, even what you're looking for, I mean, you're looking for pathology and do I have a problem that needs, you know, hospitalization, medical Mm -hmm. care, intervention of some sort, or, you know, are you looking at wellness? And those are two completely different Mm -hmm. disciplines. Um, The other factor here is sure, it's cheaper to go to your, you know, primary care physician and go through your insurance. Well, I deal with insurance every single day mm. and insurance companies, um, I, they don't want to spend more money. They don't want to spend unnecessary money and insurance is there not for our wellness or our performance. They're there to, you know, treat pathology. Right. And so a lot of lab testing, you know, you have certain things that are covered and uncovered and what's covered has to be, tied to a diagnosis. That's how the billing Mm -hmm. occurs. So if I have a diagnosis of fatigue, for example, you know, I can get a lot of things covered, but, but it is literally impossible in many cases for the primary care physician to order some of these tests that we're asking for, you know, ferritin, normal medical procedure, serum iron, in addition to ferritin or, you know, the drill down biomarkers, not normal as a Mm. step one. And so it's it's very likely to get kicked back and not even paid. And so, I mean, it is just, it's a completely different service. Um, I want to pull my hair out too when it's, you know, when it's compared, but we do accommodate, I mean, we, we will analyze people's tests, but it's the same thing. A lot of times you get it back and it's a comprehensive metabolic panel and a CBC and you know, a couple things that they ask for. And there's just right. only so much information that can be given. And a lot of times we're saying, well, we just need more. So, yeah. 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 And, it, and then it gets frustrating for both people, right? Because the for athlete sure. needs yeah. more, we need more. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you to our episode sponsor, Athlete Blood Test. I've been using Athlete Blood Test for several years as my go-to resource for athlete-specific blood testing analysis. Not only do they have a sports scientist who personally reviews and prepares each report, they use research-based athlete data sets to get you individualized guidance to hone in on your unique nutrition training and recovery needs. Check them out over at athletebloodtest.com on Instagram, athletebloodtest.com. Use the code ISN22 to save 15% off your next panel. I 
I wanted to address a couple things with you, Garrett, or have you address them actually. So a number of athletes, um, or I guess there's been this movement here in the last five, 10 years, moving towards more plant-based, uh, whether that's just more vegetarian or, or vegan type dietary pattern. Um, and so I'm thinking of, of our big endurance athlete crowd here, uh, and kind of tying to what we were just talking about a second ago with regard to having standard blood work done. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard an athlete say to me, like my doctor said, everything was fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but yet symptomatically or subjectively, you know, there are reports of fatigue or just, you know, feeling flat and, and a number of other things we can look at from a nutrition perspective, but I wondered for our plant-based athletes out there who are listening to this, who maybe haven't done blood testing at all, or they're curious, like, what do you mean athlete specific blood testing? Could you talk to some of the biomarkers that can be very insightful as to performance recovery, um, just trying to stay on top of training and, and then get to, you know, race or event day feeling their best. And I'm not trying to pick on plant-based athletes by any means, but, um, you know, oftentimes there are, at least in my eyes, I've seen some more red flags or concern areas. So I wonder if you could, you could take that question and, and run with it a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And, and first I'd love to make a comment on, you know, my physician said my levels are fine. You know, when we look at, we've looked at this quite a bit, um, you know, level versus symptom. And, mm. and in athletes, there is, you know, there's a cutoff point. We report those. The way we report our ideal numbers and normal numbers is ideal actually has this buffer. So we call it, you know, green, yellow, and red zone. Red is your deficient. Mm. Yellow is if you continue on the trend that you're on, um, within three months, you're likely to become deficient. And, and then green is, you know, everything's great. Um, but we do a lot of trending data. So, you know, you guys have seen our reports. We mm -hmm. report, you know, the last three tests and we track that throughout. And what you see is a really high incidence of athletes reporting symptoms of performance decline or general sense of well-being. Um, those things as, you know, whatever the culprit is, I mean, we can dwell on iron because that's the most well understood of, of people uh, or with people. As iron is declining, you know, and you've got this ratio of ferritin to serum iron and you go through these, you know, uh, you know, serum will come up, ferritin will go down, vice versa. And, but as you see, if you see these rapid declines or not rapid or cumulative declines, that's when people are showing symptoms even though their number mm -hmm. might even live within our ideal or, or you know, suboptimal range. But, um, you know, the body seems to have this warning system of, hey, things are trending in the wrong direction. And so I'm going to, you know, give you a warning. I'm going to create fatigue or you're not going to feel as good on your workout that's you know, really stressing the body. So it's really interesting to me. We've got a lot of work to do in that regard, um, because you talk about mapping, you know, biomarkers, 
um, you know, we get, you know, snapshots and some people are testing every few months. Some people are once mm -hmm. a year, some people are once ever. So, um, but in those athletes that are testing on a more regular basis, it is pretty interesting to watch that. So any comments on that before I take on the plant base? I would just say, thank you for bringing that up and the importance of the monitoring, you know, instead of one test every 18 years, <laughs> it might be a few tests per year or more, depending on the situation, but looking at the trends and then yes, the categorization that's in place, putting that in the context of the athlete and the trend line. So thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, so and just <clears throat> let me highlight something too, for our listeners, if they didn't catch it, cause Dean and I did, and my eyes just went like, oh, yes, 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 yes. Like golden nugget is that the body has these warning systems. A lot of times I don't think athletes listen to those warning systems. And if they do get the blood work, like to your point, it could still be within the quote unquote, you know, air quote, normal range. That's the reason why we do recommend biomarker testing more frequently, right? So if, if Garrett, before you go on the plant-based uh, down that rabbit hole, can you, I know there's no right or wrong here, but I, I mean, our listeners want to know like how many blood tests should they do per year, per decade, per, well, maybe not per decade, but I know it depends on the situation and everything, but what is your general recommendation, like where to start and how to navigate the frequency of testing? Yeah. So there's not a, a simple answer to me. And, and, you know, I live in a world in, in healthcare and here, and, and just I operate my own life uh, in thinking about the value equation, you know, how do you mm -hmm. get the most bang for your buck? And, um, you know, if you were to run through, Let's call it our gold panel every three months that would get pretty darn expensive so right. um so but for us what we often recommend is you know that initial panel should be your your biggest panel yeah. and if you can get genetics and blood you know like a, a we've got a panel called the platinum panel it's kind of it's it's expensive but you're getting genetics and blood. And what that's going to tell you is, you know, like I mentioned earlier, your genetics are going to say how things are likely to look or how they should look based on genetic affinity. Blood very often doesn't match. And, uh -huh. and statistically, it's, it's very often. And so what that does is it tells us the environmental influences. And that's ultimately where, you know, the majority of adaptation is going to, you know, occur. Um, and you know what a coach can work with, what an advisor can work with, a, a dietitian can work with. You can work around the environmental influences and, and adapt to that. So, um, so if you can get that one big panel at a point in time where you're not training as hard, you're not stressing your body as hard, it's the off season, that is an absolutely perfect time for us to catch that big panel. And then catch another panel during your peak training. Mm. Now we see what's happening or what are the trends now between, you know, a, you know, a less active or less stressed state and the most stressed state. Mm. And that's going to give us a lot of information. It's going to basically point out what are those obstacles that exist for you or that are unique to you. And then in the future, you can essentially test around the obstacles, mm -hmm. um, or maybe the genetics will, you know, share a certain affinity that, you know, is a could put 
could create a, an obstacle in the future, we can test around that. And so testing can become, you know, very efficient and affordable, cheap in many uh -huh. cases. Um, and those are the things, you know, if you do have an obstacle, um, you know, throughout the training season, you typically want to monitor, but, you know, monitoring is, it's no more frequent than, than three months for us right. usually. Okay. So, so perhaps athletes should look at this by just looking looking through the the lens and saying how many races am I registered for next year? Maybe we come back and say this is the year where I am actually you know whatever I'm I'm, I'm allocating funds I'm allocating time to do two blood tests right I'm, maybe I'm racing two to I don't know eight times this year but. I'm actually going to take the time and the financial resources to have two. I think if if listeners can start with two, just like you're saying, Garrett, right? Do that foundation one off season, get the baseline, and then let's hit another one during peak training, during race season, competition season. That, like to me, that makes sense, right? I mean, yes, I am a practitioner and, and obviously recommend this uh, every single day, but to me, that makes sense. And I think a lot of the a lot of the pushback from athletes is, oh, well, I don't have, I don't have the financial resources. Well, I think we just, we just accounted for that with how many races you're signed up for, right? I think it's really yeah. just, it's the lack of knowledge. And that's what it is because athletes do not know when to do this. And sometimes they don't know where to go, but they just don't know when. And I find that if they don't, if they have that little bit of information, now they can actually help create a plan or their coach can create a plan with them or something. I, I love that, that message. Yeah, I often yeah. think of sport enjoyment, and we talk a lot about this in ABT. You know, we use the word performance, and and sometimes we we talk amongst ourselves. Should we get rid of that word? Mm. Um, because you know, for the recreational athlete, you know, why do we engage in this? We all have a reason, you know. And you know, for a lot of us, it's it's personal challenge, it's enjoyment, it's a break away from you know our usual stressful jobs or whatever it might be but the process in most cases is some sort of you know freedom from stress and and uh it should be an enjoyable experience and you know it, if you're not feeling that well it's really not a, a very enjoyable experience and so how do we how do we prioritize enjoyment of the process um not performance on race day which you know unfortunately that's where so much of our early messaging is focused because it's where we're built around is, you know, we existed early on with the pro and in the pro circles where we work, they only have one priority and that is right. make sure our players or athletes, you know, are yeah. operating at their highest levels during you know, game day or race yeah. day. Well, and, and competition is about a couple hours. I mean, it's a day. That's why you said it's a day, right? It could be more than a day, of course. But, you know, I think it's the enjoyment process comes in the training and the preparation beforehand, for sure. Yeah. 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 Let me let me circle back because our, our plant-based athletes are like, wait, weren't they just going to talk? Are, are there are there popular biomarkers that you like to discuss with? Like if if a plant-based athlete, if I come to you, Gary, and I'm like, hey, I'm I'm vegan. I just went vegan. Are there some things that I need to maybe worry about? You know, what 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 conversations do you have around that space specific to biomarkers? Yeah, so it, um, I mean, you guys let me know that you were going to ask about this, um, and and so I was thinking about it, and you know, and these sorts of questions are really complex because they're so individual variant, <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, 
And so I was thinking, well, how I like to think of things in my mind is I like to drill them down to, okay, well, what do we know? What do we still need to find out? And, you know, what are the actions we can take? So, so I thought, well, here's some of the things that we know. Number one, we know that athletes have a significantly higher utilization of certain micronutrients and all macronutrients, you know, pretty much during training. Um, Plant-based diets are generally less efficient sources of certain micronutrients than non-plant-based. Um, plant-based eating is also significantly more common in uh, individuals with uh, current and past eating disorders. And so, so what I'm getting there is when we look at you know, information and data and try to create a strategy around, you know, plant-based, it's a pretty complex um, analysis. And, and when it comes down to it, it's, it's the individual. So the way I like to look at plant-based, you know, is it right for somebody? Are they getting what they need is, is a, um, I'm not a dietitian, so I don't, I don't work with, you know, diets, but um, but from an analysis perspective, um, you know, one of the first questions is, you know, genetic affinity. So I like to start there. So is this person, you know, is there affinities for say, you know, your B vitamins, your iron, like, is it normal or even high? Mm. And if so, you know, they're probably going to get what they need or be able to get what they need from a plant-based diet without supplementation. If it's low, then, you know, we might have a, you know, a challenge here. Um, then getting into the environmental factors. So there are a lot of things that influence absorption, as you guys know, and, and mm -hmm. things are so wide ranging from, you know, things like pathologic things like, uh, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or celiac or, you know, Definitely. intestinal disorders to, you know, stress and, you know, how hormones are reacting because of stress. And, and, uh, um, and so, um, you know, in looking at what environmental factors might be influencing that now it's, you know, uh, do they set a plant-based eater up um, for success or failure or what needs to be changed. And then secondly, you know, what is the motive behind the plant-based diet? Are, are they willing to, I mean, it's sort of a, it's a little more work to eat a plant-based diet than a non-plant-based diet. And, you know, certain micronutrients because plants are less efficient sources, mm -hmm. um, for them, you know, they're going to have to make a very conscious and calculated um, approach to, or take a conscious and calculated approach to, to getting, you know, those nutrients. So it's, so if they're not motivated because of, you know, uh, philosophy or ethical or something that's a real driving force, then, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I might just be concerned that they might not be meeting things. And, you know, ultimately relying on supplements should never be the approach for me. That should be a, a reaction, hmm. um, not a preventative approach for me. I, I, uh, if we can get it through diet, that's more ideal. So, so getting to the plant-based diet, I mean, there are individuals, you know, you look at, uh, 
was a company, uh, Vega, that, mm -hmm. that uh, I mean, their founder, um, you know, he was plant-based, he thrived under this. Um, I, you know, I saw the evidence, you know, his yeah. body did great with that oh, stuff. Yeah. Then we've had other athletes that uh, we, we always ask them if they're, we ask athletes if they're on a special diet and there are athletes that are just not doing great. And, you know, the reason for why they're not doing great is what we still have a lot of research mm -hmm. um, to, well, we just have a lot of research to do um, in order to start answering those questions. But that's where it becomes an individual approach. You don't ask right. the person these questions. So, yeah. um, so where do you want to go from there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the beauty and appreciation of the complex systems that we are as humans and then layering on these, these other uh, choices that we have. So having, having appreciation for that, just to say that out loud, uh, I think one question I have from there, Garrett is thinking of our master's athletes, uh, you know, we're all aging, but have you seen any notable trends or has the analysis or assessment part for what athlete blood test offers to customers? Has that uh, evolved or changed at all with respect to, to the aging athlete? Or is it similar to what you were saying with plant-based focus that, you know, it's pretty complex and we have to, to really see um, and learn that individual and kind of note the trends and look at the gen genetic data as well. Um, yeah, I, I think I'll start with a comment that our database for athletes over 60 in particular is, is quite a bit smaller, um, mm. but it is statistically significant in, you know, all markers and, um, but the confidence level that you know in the statements that i'll share is it's just a little bit lower but um here's an interesting um i guess insight or or observation is that that the periods in our lives of change seem to be where we find the most issues so you know age 16 17 you know those adolescent years we find more um, less than ideal results with that group than we do, you know, 28 year olds in the low forties when, I mean, I, you know, I attribute it to this is when people are really peaking in careers, the stress levels are high, you're also still clinging on to, you know, operating at your highest level physically and emotionally and mentally. And, you know, it's just, you've got kids now, it's just like, the time, the stress, like that seems to be where we see a lot of issues. And then as we hit the aging athletes and this observation, I'm not really confident in, but I'm going to share it anyway, is that, you know, I don't, there seems to be an uptick of people that get back into, you know, you know, I don't know if it's retirement or, kids moved out of the house, but mm -hmm. more time. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to, I guess, raise the bar on what we're going for. And, and so those three, you know, periods in life seem to have a, a pretty significantly higher, you know, rate of issues and, and problems. And so, um, yeah, that again is, is probably it gets complex, but there's something there. 
And, you know, we used to look at it as, you know, is this, you know, in females, you know, menopausal, you know, thing, um, which, you know, we know that that affects so much of our processing, but um, I, I don't know if I'm a hundred percent convinced that that's it. I, I kind of wonder if it's also lifestyle invoked. So yeah, I'd like to hear your guys' comments on this. Well, what you just, I mean, Garrett, I've never looked at it like that. It's kind of like the map analogy you used earlier, but I've never looked at looking at the major changes in life, or let's just say developmentally also, right? So we've got those mm -hmm. early years, we've got the later years, uh, the middle years when there's a little more stress and, and just things happen. Because, you know, having having kind of been there, done that on some of those fronts, I can totally attest to that. And like, I just had an aha moment listening to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need, this is how we need to teach people, right? So, so maybe there are specific times in life, maybe it's not just, oh, you're over 50, you're over 60. Like, let's take a step back and look at what's going on in your life though. Like to your point too, and, and it's so true. Like once, you know, if, if, if people have kids and once they're empty nesters or whatever's happening, retirement, it does seem like these guys and girls are going off to these crazy events nowadays, right? I mean, they're climbing mountains and doing all this stuff and you're like, huh. But I, I do think there's just like the resources are there, the time is there, but that is great reason to kind of really throw in this do we need to look at the body a little differently and, and be a blood work testing, genetic testing, metabolic efficiency? I mean, you name it. it. It could be a host of things, but I love looking at it through that lens. I think that is absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to give you 100% credit for that, by the way. That's that's just clinical <laughs> practice. So, yeah. I'm, but I'm still giving you 100% credit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, really quick to the, to the younger population because I I work with a lot of young athletes and the parents are always asking me this question. So I thought I would ask the expert: Is there? And I don't want to put a chronological age on it, but a lot of parents ask me: At what age should I start looking at possible blood work testing for my young athlete? Like, what 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 is your response to that? Yeah, my response, and it again, our, our data really falls off once you hit about, you know, younger than 15 years old, but okay. 16, 17 years old is, is a, a group that we see a very high incidence of, of issues. And it's quite possible mm. that that's because we're capturing people that are experiencing symptoms. So, you know, I don't dare relate this you know, these observations to an entire population, but, right. but, but then there's the studies that exist, um, you know, that are showing, you know, for iron specifically, you know, up to, well, around a, a 50% um, yeah. rate of deficiency in female endurance athletes. Wow. We're doing an interesting project right now with, um, it's a nonprofit called Know If You're Low. Yeah. And um, it's a high school runner that uh, became, very deficient in iron and and was like that for a while you know had tests done she fell within ferritin only fell within right. normal limits you right. know everything's fine so that's not it what's going on and and uh you know and then you eventually really had you know the right testing done and found out it's just as simple as iron and that that's a story mm. that plays out a lot in our system um if you recall you know, 10 years ago, it's just everybody should take iron, right? Do you remember right, that? Right. <laughs> right. You're faster, which is just uh, has led to a whole lot of awful results in our, our system of people just, you know, really high. Iron. But, um, but 
as more data comes in from that, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, we're going to have our own study, um, you know, on a really the high school age range. So basically kid, well, high school kids can, they're getting free iron tests through this nonprofit. That is great. Um, is that, is that national? It's national. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We're doing all, all the testing. So yeah, it's called know if you're low. Um, and it's, it's a neat initiative. We'll have some fantastic study that comes out of this and probably gosh, within months, cause we just had a whole bunch of people engage in it. Um, but going back to your question to me, 16 and 17 years old seems to be this magic range. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot going on there. If you're looking you know, really at endurance athletes, um, you know, peer pressure is a Huge. big deal. Huge. Um, yep. um, staying skinny. There's always, you know, not staying skinny, but, um, body changes. I mean, right. you, you look at the body changes that are occurring at that age and, and slightly before it, um, especially in the female adolescent athletes. And, um, and, and so we just see a lot of problems and that's also for a lot of athletes. I mean, that is this, that's a pretty critical time period for those that are interested in playing, you know, collegiately. Um, and, you know, I can share story after story after story of, you know, kids that we tested at the ages of 16, 17, find an issue. They were gifted athletes and now they're just, you know, they've sort of hit a, uh, a point of not improving and they get tested by our system. We identify a problem and then they just skyrocket and, you know, end up, you know, going on collegiately. We've got a number of division one, you know, top school athletes right now that that was their story. And, and that's not, that's not meant to be a sales pitch. Um, but it's more meant to be, this is a, I mean, statistically it is a, it's a, it's a problem at that age. And there's, again, it's complicated. There's a lot of issues. There's psychosocial issues. There's, you know, Mm -hmm. physiological issues that the amount of energy that the body requires to, you know, to grow tissue, to grow muscle, to, you know, change the plasticity of bones, like all that stuff. I mean, that's essentially increasing the needs like a training athlete anyway. And then you have, you know, that, I mean, we're training our kids hard nowadays. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, so there's a lot going on there that seems to create a, a pretty big uptick in issues. And, and so in my mind, I think kids should be tested at 16, 17, especially if they're, you know, looking at trying to take that next level, mm-hmm. or if, you know, in our big cities, some of our, I mean, some of our varsity teams are practically collegiate teams. <laughs> I mean, they're just, For they're sure, operating yeah. as it. So, Yeah. That's a long Wonderful. answer. Yeah. No, no. And, and I think <laughs> it helps helpful. parents understand and even coaches maybe understand yeah. the big picture. And, you know, I, I do appreciate you saying it's not a sales pitch. It's, you know, I think of it more of a needs analysis because whenever I work with a young athlete, you know, the first thing I ask their parents is, have you had blood work testing? Like literally one of the first things I ask and, you know, 99.9% of the time it's no, obviously. Yeah. 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 Okay, I wanted to tag back on something you you were hinting at, Garrett, about supplements and like with the iron story, I think there are a number of athletes, whether they're younger or even, you know, master's age, like, well, I heard or I read 
you know, if I'm more vegan, I should just supplement with iron just cause, you know, to prevent X, Y, Z. And, but there is something, as you mentioned earlier, this risk of over supplementing, um, let alone, do we need to supplement? And is there something going on maybe from the genetic perspective there that we need to uncover as well? So could you share from your experiences along the way, uh, what you've seen in terms of, you know, are there cases that supplementation is always warranted or does that go back to how athlete blood test does the categories for the individual markers and then that bigger picture assessment that your team provides? Um, and then like, where's the food piece come into this whole story and then the food first kind of approach or like, let's maximize the food angle before we throw a whole bunch of supplements into the picture. Yeah. Um, I'm a big proponent of food first and, and that comes from exposure. You know, I come from an industry that, that is, you know, supplement first in many cases and, um, um, it, it through, I mean, the many, 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 you know, tests that I've seen, the day that we've seen, I, I have, you know, turned exclusively to food first, um, pretty much in all cases, and avoid blind supplementation unless you have prior knowledge. You know, for me, for example, if I, you know, really crank up high altitude workout, well, just workouts, then you know, I know what my levels tend to do. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I might supplement iron for a week, but, um, but that's just because I've tested enough, you know? Yeah. Um, but um, so I'm to your question. I generally don't like blind supplementation. We did a, uh, this is a really interesting um analysis that we did quite a few years ago and and I'm going to get some of the percentages wrong here but um so I, I'll avoid percentages how about that and um so we looked at athletes we asked people if they're taking supplements now and we looked at athletes taking multivitamins the incidence of deficiency or too high levels um of we looked at iron folate B12, um, a couple other biomarkers. I can't remember what the other ones were, but those three are the important ones here. And we still saw like multivitamins prevented deficiency slightly, but it was wildly disappointing. It is, wow. it's like, if you look at, you know, just B12, it was something like, you know, natural deficiency was occurring and you know 20% of people that weren't taking anything and those taking multivitamins still had like a 15% wow. deficiency rate. Hmm. You know, iron was that delta was even smaller. And so there's something about multivitamins that just wasn't isn't working in the study mm -hmm. that we've done. I and mean, we've all read research on multivitamins. I mean mm -hmm. one one study says yep they're the greatest thing and then the next says they're worthless and um, so I, our study was controlled. It's, you know, near dear to me. It's our data. I trust it more than anything. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, that has led to the opinion that, you know, just a, a shotgun approach probably is less effective than it should be. Yeah. Um, a targeted approach is very effective when guided, when, you know, when you're, you know, 
standardizing quality, um, you know, and when people are taking it right, so it's guided appropriately. Um, but even targeted approaches should be, you know, you should put parameters on um, if it's supplementation. And those parameters should taper off to zero if at all possible. Mm-hmm. Now, the food approach is always preferred by us, by me. And um, if we can correct something via food, which in most cases, I mean, most statistically, you know, we can, um, and we've proven that, um, you know, that's going to be the approach. And then, you know, if somebody's just so far low on, say, iron, then, you know, supplementing that for a period of time, you know, just to get it up, get the person feeling good. And I mean, you guys know with iron, I mean, if somebody is deficient, you give them iron and within days, they feel like a new person, um, even if levels aren't there, but it's that trending that I was talking about earlier. So um, did that it's amazing how fast that, that response, isn't it? Yes. It yeah. Is. Yeah. It, it's so funny because athletes, and I'm sure all of us are in the same boat, you know, the question of the day that I get every single day, well, maybe not on the weekends, but is, oh, what supplement should I take? And, <laughs> and you know, I love that question because I get to engage in a conversation with athletes. So my first, my answer to that is, well, what blood work have you had done? Right. And they look at me a little dumbfounded, like, what are you talking about? I'm just asking about pills, powders, and potions. And I'm like, well, that's the targeted approach that you're talking about. That is... That is what, you know, when, when, when you're good at something like the three of us are, right, that's what we do, right? It's that targeted approach. It's not the shotgun approach. And I just want to, you know, kind of reach out and, and say, I appreciate that. I do, I do appreciate supplements. I'm actually very pro supplement when there is a targeted approach and we've got data that supports the need for a lot of these. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad that our uh, philosophies align there. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's why we love you so <laughs> much, right? Absolutely. Great question. There's no money. There's not much money to be made in just recommending the diet, right? I know. I know. Right. It's, it's kind of loaded. <laughs> yeah. It's loaded too because you're like, okay, where are we going to go down this rabbit hole, right? No. Oh, well, Garrett, before we move on to our last, what we call high five questions, just to kind of wrap up here. Is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you like to mention, fill in the blanks? What what haven't we covered that you really think is is necessary for our listeners in this first podcast that we've had on you as a guest on? Um, I really can't think of anything. Um, if I were to encourage your listeners, um, you know, to take action on certain things, number one would be to, to use an expert. And, mm-hmm. and if you're going to get blood testing, it's, it's, you know, helpful to do just in itself, but it's the value that you're going to get when it's, you know, read by somebody who also is helping you manage your diet, you know, people like you guys, um, your total life approach, your training approach is, it's just, it's worth the extra money. And then, um, and then, you know, Bob, as you mentioned earlier, and Dina, you know, just the cost of blood testing and prioritizing it. I, when I think of, should I get those fancy wheels or should I, you know, optimize my body the the answer should always be optimizing your body because it's going to create a more enjoyable experience. Um, you're going to be faster if your body's optimized than, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. couple Watts that you're saving with the wheels. And, uh, um, so it's, it's worth doing, um, 
without a doubt. Perfect. Here, but, here. but the wheels, the wheels look sexy though, don't they? I know that's <laughs> that's the problem. We we've talked about that internally. We need, we need to yeah. make some sort of badge or hat. Or I know. Really, that when you do a test, you get something that totally feeds our, feeds totally. our vein side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure we you you could come up with something. You know, you're based out of Colorado. We know Colorado is the coolest state ever. Sorry, everyone, but we we do feel that way. But you know, maybe there is something like Colorado born, and I don't know. I just I just brainstorming but no we we definitely appreciate that well let's let's move into our high five so these these are just for you know to let our listeners know a little bit more behind the scenes about garrett and just kind of what what kind of what kind of great guy you are so these are not uh scripted you can whatever comes off the top of your head uh that's kind of the point of these these high five questions we ready i think ready. So. all right so <laughs> Can't first, wait. first one i just kind of wanted to easy into the first one so first question savory or sweet savory and i and i did know that but i wanted to yeah. <laughs> because I, I put my orders in for all around <laughs> that's right oh nice. here it does like gore, my gourmet <laughs> snack mix through yeah that's awesome bag, yes <laughs> oh cool cool okay question number two what is your morning routine so my mornings are the only predictable part of my day and I just like things to be very controlled. So usually I get up around five. Um, coffee is the first thing. Okay, um, yep. We have a daughter um, that uh, make put her lunch together. And then I usually, uh, we live in Steamboat Springs. Mornings are, they're cold usually and, and just yep. go sit on the deck and, and, you know, watch the sunrise. So, oh. but something, something that's predictable, the same every morning. And I have the, I literally make a smoothie every single day and have made the same smoothie for probably 15 years. I love <laughs> it. I love it. Wow. My well, family we'll, have, to get, we'll yeah. have to get that recipe offline. No for kidding. Me. That recipe was built by athlete blood test findings. So. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Number three, this is going to be an interesting one. Um, this is one that I chose personally. What is your quirkiest habit, perhaps one that your wife likes to chuckle at or poke a little bit of fun at you? Oh, boy. That's probably be more one. appropriate for, yeah, I like to blind myself to my, <laughs> if there is quirkiness, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> that yeah. I, I'm just kidding. I really, I, I think if there was one thing that she laughs at, it's um, that I'm very particular about where things go okay. <laughs> in okay. the house. So like, like, yeah. and I'm particular about how the dishwasher is oh, stacked, you know, yes, and, if there's, yes. and where the shoes go and uh, <laughs> the other members of my family are not. Um, and so, so I think they laugh when, when they see me just bothered by that shoe sitting there that doesn't yep. belong there. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I like order. Yes. I, told, I was yeah. just totally relating to the dishwasher activity or uh, dishwasher organization. And I'm waiting for someone to write a manual for my husband so that, because we need, uh, even though he's an engineer, there's no yeah organization what. happening. Anyways. Okay, I, I share that. I share that organization thing, especially the shoes got me. I was like, oh yeah, that's one of my biggest things too. Like, why can't they just be 
in the right place, right? Funny, funny. It's the oh. closet's just two feet away, but yeah. I know, but, yes, yes. Yeah, and that's why we all live in data and spreadsheets. And uh, right, <laughs> right, right. Awesome. Uh, question number four, Garrett, what's your favorite outdoor activity? And maybe it's seasonal, so you can put, yeah. you know, summer versus winter if you want. Yeah, if I'm in the outdoors, I'm happy. Um, we live in the mountains and I spend every bit of free time that I can in the mountains. So winter, I'm a big skier, um, especially love backcountry skiing. Yeah. Um, but a good day on the resort is pretty exhilarating as well. Um, summer, um, just trail running, uh, mountain biking, um, I, anything in the mountains, uh, fall, spend a lot of time in the fall in the mountains and uh in the spring is usually mud season so maybe yeah. we'll go catch a beach but um yeah it, it's everything outdoors um if it's active and if i'm breathing hard then i'm happiest and if i'm in the mountains love it well you definitely live in a beautiful place for that yeah. 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 Okay. Last question. This one, just to let, just to preface it, it sometimes gets some of our listeners. So, so let's just set that one up. Okay. Last question. If you had only one piece of advice to give to athletes, only one, what would that one piece of advice be? That's a really tough question, but two things come to mind and, and I know I only did one, but they're kind of tied together. One is yeah. you know, the word fun or enjoy and longevity come to mind. Um, um, you know, I think of like life sports, lifelong sports. And then I think of, you know, the, the sports that are age appropriate. And um, and I, I was a serious athlete um, through high school, through college. Um, afterwards tried to stay a serious athlete by mm. getting into endurance sports racing and, and, uh, um, you know, there's only so far you can go, um, once you hit a, a certain state, physical right. state, I think, but, right. um, but focusing on, on just the enjoyment of the process, you know, it's, it's not about the race, the game, it's, it's about, you know, the process. And, and that's probably something that comes with age. Now I think of, you know, I used to wear a watch and you know, calculate everything and stress over hitting this mm -hmm. or that. And, um, and, you know, I, I wasn't having as much fun as a really stressful experience. And I'm not sure my performance, I mean, it, that stuff's important. Um, it's really helpful, but not every day, day in, day out. It's like focus on the fun workouts, um, or at least mix them in. So I, I, that's what comes to mind. It's been Love critical it. for me as a, Wise. Captain serious. So yeah. Love Captain it. Captain serious. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Garrett, we have been so grateful to have your time today and share so much of your wisdom and, you know, just learning the story of athlete blood test and all of the insight that you've provided to us and for our listeners. So we want to thank you so much. And uh gosh. I'm hopeful that you'll come back for a, for a, another part two, where we could maybe do a deeper dive on a particular subject or two. I always love chatting with you guys and it's been way too long, um, too many years. So yeah, we'd, I'd love to come back, uh, 
sooner. And thank you for having me on. And I, I hope that people at least get a nugget or two out of this. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And Guaranteed. Dina, I think it's going to be a series of like five to 10 at least. So let's just, <laughs> let's just put that up there. <laughs> yes. Well, we will be sure to share uh, in the show notes, the links to athlete blood test uh, on social and the amazing panels that are offered and the blogs and so forth. Your team has been outstanding over the years. I highly recommend the services. So thank you again, Garrett, for all that you do and your team. And thanks for joining us today on the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 41 with Dr. Garrett Rock, where Dina and I chatted all things biomarker testing for athletes. Hope you gained a lot of knowledge from that episode. In our next episode, 42, Dina and I sit down and chat with an unbelievable person and athlete, Andrew Skirka. This, This amazing individual has done so much in his life. He is an outdoor athlete. He's a mountain guide, expedition guide, super screaming fast marathon runner also. And in addition to trail running, I mean, he has just done it all super quick. Uh, He's got a really great take on life and nutrition. So we did, we just wanted to kind of chat with him about what he does during the day, his nutrient timing strategies, what he does during road runs, trail runs, what he does on his expeditions that last between three to 11 days and his favorite mixture concoction, if you will, on the trail that he gives all of his clients when he does these expeditions. So stay tuned for that. It's an exciting episode. If you have a sport and nutrition related question that you'd like Dean and I to chat about and address on a future episode, just send us an email. Hello at insidesportsnutrition.com. Be sure to include your name and the question, obviously, and we will address that on a future episode. We love our Ask Us Anything episodes. We would love your support in promoting our podcast. If you're finding that what we're providing is working for you and it's actually of value, we would love for you to visit your favorite podcast platform, review, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us spread the word to other athletes and individuals around the world and will help other listeners engage with us. If you would like more information about what Dina and I do in our respective businesses, we both provide individual and team nutrition coaching, physiological and biomarker testing, and I provide endurance coaching. You can reach out to me by visiting energyperformance.com. That's E-N-R-G performance.com and reach out to Dina at nutritionmechanic.com. Lastly, we want to thank you, or we want to thank our podcast sponsor, Athlete Blood Test. They provide individual athlete-specific blood analysis so they can you can discover your unique nutrition, training, and recovery needs. Shout out to them. We love them to death. Use the code ISN22 for a 15% savings on any of their testing panels. You can check them out at athletebloodtest.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests involved and do not represent a replacement for medical consultation with your doctor. The information and opinions provided here are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or medical condition. This podcast is for information, education, and entertainment purposes only.